I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending May 1st. In this episode, an interview with Arajit Rechowdhury, a professor at Georgia Tech. We talked to him about the tension between the expectations of incoming engineering students and the expectations of the companies who might want to hire them after they graduate. Also, we have my EE Times colleague from London, Sally Ward-Foxton, here to talk about the latest thing from EE Times, which she's working on. And finally, a conversation with Michael Kirshner, one of the world's leading engineering experts on environmental regulations applied to the electronics industry. Education has changed, and that most certainly includes engineering education. Students applying to engineering schools are looking for programs where they expect to start getting hands-on experience quicker than engineering students in the past used to get it. Companies claim they aren't getting the caliber of engineer they want out of graduating classes. To find out what an engineering education should look like, we figured the best person to talk to was a professor with a solid corporate background. There are several of those to choose from, but international editor Junko Yoshida and EDN Editor-in-Chief Richard Quinnell called up an old friend of theirs, Arjit Rechowdhury. Rechowdhury distinguished himself at both Intel and at Texas Instruments, and he's now a professor at the School of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the Georgia Institute of Technology, as well as the co-director of the GT Quantum Alliance at Georgia Tech. From your viewpoint as, as an instructor, you know, are you getting any kind of feedback from students as to uh, things they say that, uh, gosh, I wish I'd learned about that in school or? Uh, um... Yeah, I think I think that's you know, one thing that students always, always mention. And this is you know, very specific to certain instructors as well. So students are always interested in understanding how things that they are learning in the class kind of are applied to the real world. Right. You know, what are the what are the products? You know, what are the things that are using? whatever fundamental techniques that we are teaching them, right? Mm-hmm. So there, so, you know, this is, I think, very common in the in the academia these days. So there are some academics who have moved to academia from the industry and they have a better understanding of what's going on. You know, people who are actually, you know, doing uh, work with the industry, I think, you know, students enjoy taking, particularly when I say students, I'm talking about undergraduate students, like, you know, mm-hmm. like the, the sophomores and the juniors and all that. Mm-hmm. So they enjoy taking courses which have more implication on what you know what the industry is doing and, and where they can get jobs and stuff like that. And then there are some courses which are very fundamental, right? Like you know we cannot stop teaching them Laplace transform or, or Fourier transform. So these <laughs> have to be taught, right? So you know they sometimes find it hard to kind of connect them to real world applications. But I think that's what students are always looking for: some sort of a connection to you know how does the theory connect to uh, to practice. Okay. I know that one of the uh... One of the most popular of the articles consistently in terms of our, our readership uh, reports has been the basics of setup and hold time. Yes. Where would we where could we get more of that kind of stuff out there? You know, a lot of the people in the industry are are way too up in the clouds to remember. Yeah, you would not. I think that's a perfect question. So I teach this VLSI course, right? This graduate VLSI course, and I spend about 20% of my time just talking about setup and hold because I did not understand how complex setup and hold was before I started working in the industry. And that's where I understood, you know, how complex hold time is. And, and you know, if you really want to understand hold time, you know, if you design a flip-flop, 
you know, how do you clock the, the two stages of a flip-flop so that you can get the best hold time? So, you know, these are things that you only learn by, you know, building it and, and seeing how it works and then deploying it in, in millions and billions. So I think if you need to get someone to write about it, I think you need someone who remembers the theory, but also mm -hmm. understands what's going on in the practice. So, you know, maybe an academic is a better fit, but someone who has, you know, some experience in designing over very large, you know, designs, I think you need that. And I, exactly that is what I'm saying, you know, is kind of missing in books. It's missing in most articles as well. A lot of things are happening in the technical world, and they are moving very fast. What are the new topics you think we should be covering? In terms of new topics, um, I think in all, all areas of design, you know, there are new topics that you can talk about. You know, for example, if you look at technology today, you know, transistor scaling probably is coming to an end or whatever it means, you know, it'll, 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 I mean, technologically, it's probably, you know, not going as fast as we, we would want. Mm -hmm. But in terms of memory technologies, for example, or back end of line transistor technologies, I think there are lots of new things that, you know, that there are papers and the industry is moving very fast in that particular domain. You know? mm -hmm. And there are no good books because these are all, you know, the, you know, the black magic that the industry folks are aware of and, and academics not, don't, don't necessarily mm -hmm. care. Other, another inter, in, important problem, I think, or important technology trend that I see, which is not covered in books as well as it should be, is integration, 2D, 2.5D, 3D, and all that. Like, you know, you know, what does it mean, and and what are the different, you know, implications of all of that? Mm -hmm. I think that part is kind of. I haven't seen good books in that area. Either it's just too optimistic, you know, we talk about. <laughs> you know, layers and layers of transistors, which is never going to happen. You know, if it, even if it's you know technologically feasible, it's just economically not feasible. But yeah. I think you know, even short-term means of of getting there, like the chiplet technologies that Intel has been working on, like you know the TSMC chiplet, yeah. yeah, yeah, chiplet. I think those are kinds of things which I don't think there are good books on. When you went out into uh, into the into the real world and things, what did you find your information needs were? Um, you know, as a new engineer, it was mostly people like you turn to your your mentors and your friends and people who have who have done it before, because many of these things in practice are things that you just, you know, learn by by doing it. And then there is no written documentation, right? There is no book. There is no article that talks about it. So I, you know, I would say that you, know, you get 70, 80 percent of the information that you need from books and articles that you can read online. But then there is this last 10%, 20%, which you need just to talk to people so that people have done it in the in, in the past so that mm -hmm. you know, you know where, where the state of the art is. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, um, you know, in, in many cases in my, you know, at least from my experiences, I've seen that, you know, I've done something and it hasn't worked and then we iterate and then we figure out, you know, what why it hasn't worked, talk to others and colleagues and so on and figure out, you know, what, what can be done to fix it. Um, but I think in most cases, and even today, you know, I look, you know, if I have to, if I have to learn something new, I read papers and books, and then you have to understand what the numbers are. I go to, you know, places like EDN. That's the mm. way I think about it. Mm. Because, you know, I won't get the numbers. Like, what is the pitch? What is the bit rate? These kinds of numbers I won't get. Like, the, you know, someone who has compiled it across different technologies, across different foundries, we don't get that in the books and articles, you know. Uh, but I think that's why these online resources are very, very useful. You know, are there are there emerging technologies that uh, that you think we ought to be, you know, highlighting or bringing to people's attention to, or, or getting them prepared to be able to use. Yeah. You know, they, there's a lot of excitement about things like quantum computing, but in reality, quantum computing is a decade away. Yeah. Um, you know, are there things that are a little a little closer that we yeah. might we might say, hey, you know, in the next year or two, you might be called upon to mm. to work in this area, and yeah. uh, 
here's some background information to get you started. Yeah, yeah. I think I think one of those areas would be you know I think process engineers now need to understand packaging because the way I look at the trend now, if you look at you know if you look at all the recent work by you know AMD's you know the the last the Zen processors or Intel's you know EME yeah. focus and all the technologies. So it's all about you know heterogeneous integration on the package. So I think a lot of back end of line you know engineers in in these companies. Are now going to use their skill sets to build dense packages, mm. and that you know transition I can see that happening. You know many of our research programs, which are you know most of my research is, is industry funded, so I can see mm. that they are asking us to look at these kinds of things, right? Both from a design perspective as well as, as from a processing perspective, yeah. and there is very little understanding, at least in the U.S. Uh, amongst you know amongst uh, both academics and practicing engineers on how this transition is going to happen. I think TSMC is probably doing a better job of of making sure that people can understand that this is a smooth transition between you know what is on die versus what is on package, and I think this would be one area where you know I would I would suspect that you know people would need to be ready you know very very mm. soon. As a professor, when you see your students start working for TI or anywhere else, um, what are the general knowledge? You know, maybe this guy is a process technology guy. But, you know, and he's hired as a process technology guy at TI. But what do you expect as a professor, as a teacher, that what are the, you know, grounded the basic knowledge in the other areas that he should be paying attention to? Any advice? Yeah, I think particularly for EC students, you know, I, I feel like people who do well in the industry eventually are the people who have a broad understanding of different things, right? Because it cannot be, you, know, you have to be an expert in one thing, but you need to have a broader understanding of things. And mm-hmm. and today, I think, you know, I you know, I typically with my, at least my PhD students, I always tell them to take courses from, from all across the board, not just, you know, courses in your area of research. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, a, a, a good example would be, you know, people who are doing process technologies, for example, need to understand, you know, physics and chemistry very well. So I think, you know, the ah. chemistry very well, particularly, they need to, I mean, device people now really need to understand materials. I think if you don't yeah. understand materials, it's a, it's a problem. And, and I, you know, it's harder for materials people to understand devices mm-hmm. and technology. I think it's easier for, or somewhat easier for, for you know, process people to understand chemistry. <laughs> I think you're biased, but that's okay. Right. <laughs> right. But ALD and all that, I think they understand you know, how the, 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 you know, the, the basic chemistry works. It, I think it helps them because I think we have to keep on you know, changing the paradigm you know, now that we are looking at more new materials. Yeah. I, think, I think that's one. Yeah. Uh, similarly, I think for circuit designers, you know, I, I feel like a lot of circuit designers going to the industry, they, um, they do not have a, particularly for analog designers and all, I think many of them have forgotten you know even basic math and 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 so on like you know control theory for example so i think those are the kinds of things which i and they have to relearn once they once they go to ti or whatever company that they are in so i think they sometimes have the skill sets but not necessarily a broader general understanding of engineering math and physics and chemistry which is often you know, required when you showed up at the doorstep at ti Right, mm-hmm. you are the young guy, and uh, did you already have PhD at that time? No, 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 no. no okay, so when you showed up, that that, what are the things you said to yourself? Gosh, I sh- I I wish I had taken that course, or I wish I had studied that before I came here. So I can say from my experience, I think what was missing was I had all the background knowledge, but what I was missing was I I did not know how to connect the dots. 
you know, mm-hmm. how is this particular subject material connected to that subject material? I think that's something that you don't learn in, in college, right? Because you learn, you know, all these courses in you know, separate semesters. And mm-hmm. then uh, at some point, all of these things need to connect and click together. That mm-hmm. typically doesn't happen in college. I think that the, <laughs> my first, you know, six months, eight months of, of TI was essentially trying to understand, you know, how these different components are connected <laughs> together. And I think, I think, you know, at least some universities now are trying to do more, you know, hands-on design-based courses, you know, in senior years and even for graduate students, which I think help a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, someone who's, uh, who has, you know, who has the natural ability to hack things and write software and, and break things and put them together back, mm-hmm. I think they are better engineers. I mean, they will be able to, you know, connect better uh, when, they, when they enter the workforce. So I think yeah. more vertically integrated projects and, and courses, I think, are what is important. Not once during that interview, did any of the participants in that conversation roll their eyes and say, kids these days? That's pretty good, right? Last week, we promised an appearance from our London correspondent, Sally Ward-Foxton. Sally is our artificial intelligence maven, but lately she's been working on a top-secret project that we're finally able to talk about. Hi, Sally. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. We've got a new product. Sounds pretty cool. Can you tell us about it? So we are delighted to announce that eTimes is launching a new product, eTimes Weekend Edition. It's an email. Um, It'll go out with some kind of light weekend reading. It'll still be technology, Mm -hmm. business focused, uh, but we really wanted to do something a little bit different. We're aiming to provide some inspiration for you during your weekend reading and hopefully a bit of light relief as well. The articles will be shorter and lighter than some of the really deep dives uh, that we do here on eTimes.com. Uh, but from the same kind of expert analysis, thoughtful opinion, uh, the same thing you know to expect from our global team of, of editors. And hopefully it'll provide some good news mixed with light relief. You know, there's a lot of bad news around at the moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think a lot, a nice relaxing <laughs> read, you know, with some good news is what everyone needs right now. Um, I cannot argue with that at all. So tell us what the format is going to be, though. It's an email. Uh, the idea is that you can sit down with a cup of coffee or whatever you might be drinking on the weekend. Maybe you read on your phone so it's there in your inbox. Hopefully you get a few quiet minutes and you can just read the whole thing from start to finish in 10, 15 minutes. It's not a long read. Um There'll be a mixture of columns from your favorite editors. The interviews will be maybe a little bit more personal, uh, kind of for CEOs, industry figures. We'll get to know them a little bit. And there'll be some fun stuff too. We're hoping to do everything from book reviews, movie reviews, to ideas for weekend projects with Arduino, right through to showing you cool technology applications and how technology is affecting the world we live in today. All right. So the first edition is going to be this weekend, right? What's what's going to be in episode number one? That's right. It goes out this Saturday. Um, and in issue number one, I'll be asking whether AI is good for the environment or bad. Um, we, I mean, we can use AI to predict everything from climate change to which species are going extinct. But computing these massive AI models in the data center actually has quite a surprisingly large carbon footprint. Um Mm. Our editor in France, Anne-Francoise Pellet, she'll be examining why neuromorphic computing suddenly come back into the spotlight. Because uh, it's been around since the 80s, but why is everybody suddenly talking about that again now? Uh, our global co-editor-in-chief, Bolagio Joe, he'll be profiling TSMC, taking a look at why TSMC are just flying ahead, even during these strange times. Um, and these pieces, they won't appear on etimes.com. 
It's all brand new, it's exclusive, so if you want to see it, you've got to subscribe. To subscribe, go to eetimes.com slash weekend. And let me just uh, see if I understand this correctly. If you're already subscribed to the EE Times daily and weekly newsletter, you're going to be seeing that in your inbox on Saturday instead of our regular uh, the the weekly briefing that you've you've been getting is that right? So everybody on the list will receive it this Saturday, and just click opt in to keep receiving it. That's all you have to do. Fantastic! Thanks, Sally. Thanks, Brian. Are you getting one of our EE Times newsletters now? If so, this Saturday you'll be seeing the weekend edition in your mailbox automatically. If you want to keep getting it, though, please go to the website and opt in. Now, what if you don't get one of our newsletters and you'd like to get the weekend edition? Either way, visit eetimes.com weekend and sign in. That's eetimes.com weekend. By the way, EE Times publishes multiple other newsletters, one for daily news and others that are published periodically that collect recent reporting on specific topics such as microprocessor technology, autonomous vehicle technology, memory devices, and others. If you'd like to sign up for any of those, there's a subscribe button at the top of the homepage at eetimes.com. People are increasingly concerned with pollution and waste, and governments around the world are imposing restrictions on what materials can be used and how they can be used. Now, the traditional way of building things is to employ the most convenient resources and then discard the product when we're done. That's a linear economy. Linear economies consistently lead to pollution and waste. What's becoming a preferred way of doing things is to figure out how to build things in such a manner that as they approach the end of their usefulness, they can be recycled or reused. That's the essence of a circular economy. The electronics industry uses any number of substances that are toxic, hazardous, or otherwise unsafe. Michael Kirshner is an engineer who specializes in the circular economy. He consults with companies on compliance with the growing number of new regulations that are being adopted to minimize pollution and waste. He's also one of EE Time's newest contributors. His regular column on the circular economy is called Closing the Loop. I asked Kirshner to identify some of the basic problems. Here's what he said. What we really don't have a good grasp on is uh, the materials that are being used in their toxicity and what their toxic two and and uh, four so we end up uh building stuff with uh, all these materials and uh uh regulators and others come back to us and say well no that's that's toxic you really shouldn't use it no by the way uh, you should figure out how to recycle this because uh you know plastic uh should (laughs) shouldn't go into landfills it'll stay there for a long time um, you know, we know how to extract gold and platinum and palladium and silver from uh, integrated circuits and those sort of things. We can we can we can do that. I mean, we're we're basically trying to recover um, uh, elemental value as opposed to IP value. <laughs> so from from products and devices. So we haven't really got that IP value recycling concept down yet. Um, how do I reuse something? How do I extend its life? Why do I extend its life? And there's, 
So I was talking about the the uh, linear economy. There's a lot of pressure to not do that because you can cannibalize your business if you um, say, well, just just use that here. You know, do this little thing. We'll sell you this little little gizmo for a hundred bucks, and you can continue to use that five hundred dollar laptop for another ten years. Well, they don't really want to do that. They want to keep selling that la- uh, selling you new laptops every few years. Um, so yeah, there's there's inertia and there's uh, there's uh, uh, back pressure on circularity in uh, the electronics industry. Kirchner said some companies are beginning to get past that inertia. An example, he said, is the robotic system that Apple built to disassemble its iPhones so that it can reuse materials. We talked about regulations that limit or even ban materials. Part of the issue for the electronics industry is that there are rarely drop-in replacements for many of the materials it uses. Kirshner offered an example of brominated flame retardants, or BFRs, now often used with the ABS plastics that provide the enclosures for many products. BFRs are increasingly problematic, however, not only because of their own properties, but also because of the additives used with them. The European Union in particular is a great leader in identifying what the problematic substances are, and they have a whole project that they finished about a year or two ago looking at additives in plastics. So I expect over time we'll see those get pulled. Um, And we already saw, as I said, brominated flame retardants restricted now in enclosures for monitors, televisions, and displays. So who knows what's next? So as we mentioned, Mike has started writing his column for us. There's a link to it on the podcast page. I asked him what specific issues he might address in the next few. Boy, there's so many issues. I kind of <laughs> wanted to. <laughs> it's, it's a big problem, right? It's a big problem <laughs> space, right? It, it is. And, and we as an industry don't have a lot of expertise or knowledge in it. And uh, that's kind of frustrating. So I kind of want to take it a little slow. Yeah. Um, you know, the first sentence in my initial article was, you know, why are they doing this to us? <laughs> yeah. It's like, what? Are, where's this all coming from? I mean, we've had to, had to deal with Ross for 18 years now. Ross, the restriction of the use of certain hazardous substances in electrical and electronic equipment, also pronounced Rose. R-O-H-S, or the very bizarre Rojas. I don't know where the A in Rojas comes from. Um, you know, this is this is something I blame the Brits for. They never told us how to pronounce it. Um, <laughs> but it, it restricts now 10, 10 substances from the use of electronic, uh, electrical electronic equipment. And that was really the first salvo of governments regulating the supply chain. Those substances include several elements, including lead, for which there is no practical replacement for some applications in electronics. Governments tend to have toxicologists working for them, Kirshner noted, but they don't know the electronics industry. The industry, he said, could probably stand to do a little more lobbying in this area. I asked him what companies are doing to join the circular economy. Yeah, so there's a certainly a spectrum of what companies do. The companies that are leading, uh, as I said, the Apples, HPs, Dells of the world, they have a staff, particularly Apple, of toxicologists and environmental engineering expertise. 
that reviews the chemical substances that are used in their product and gives their engineers, you know, this is what you can do. This is your safe design space now. So they take a very proactive approach. Most of industry, uh, electronics and others, take a very reactive approach. They wait until there's a regulation in place and scramble to see if they have any of that stuff that's been restricted in their product and uh, uh, through hiring an outside firm usually to go uh, collect the information from the supply chain because the supply chain is the only place that really knows. You know, your, your manufacturers, their manufacturers, and so on back upstream, they're the only ones who really know what's in the components and materials that you're buying from them. And sometimes you have to test it. Sometimes you have to send it to a lab and have it tested for, uh, you know, does it contain any of these substances? It's very hard to do the other thing, which is, what is this made of? Uh, it's pretty expensive, as you might imagine. So collecting that information is like the first basic step. What gets complicated after you've decided whether you have any of this stuff in there and you replace it and get rid of it is, okay, how do I use this to move ahead of these regulations? You know, what, what should I do? How do I Pareto this huge pile of information to determine uh, what I can do to maybe avoid being regulated the next, uh, the next time around? That's where you need additional help, perhaps. You know, working with a, a toxicologist on uh, what's worst, you know, <laughs> where, where are my biggest problems or what are my <laughs> easiest problems to solve? Um, where I'll get the biggest bang for the buck, perhaps. Maybe it's not the worst substance, but it's easy to get rid of. It's in a place that's accessible by people uh, and your customers, and you really shouldn't want them to uh, be exposed to this stuff. Uh, if you can get rid of it, great. Mm-hmm. As opposed to some horribly toxic substance that's buried in a semiconductor that's encapsulated by a thermal set resin, you know, you're not going to worry about arsenic in your dye. <laughs> um, that's just not going to rise to the top. Yeah, there's there's a bunch of steps, uh, a bunch of things you can do, and it all is based on what the company's goal is, what their intent is, what, what honestly their market is, and what their product is. What, are they, what can they do, either to get a competitive advantage um, or improve the safety of their product, or both, preferably. Right. Okay, well, uh, what I'm hearing is it would be a good idea to keep reading your column as you uh, as you learn more and and uh, impart your knowledge. I hope so, and I hope to uh, hear from the readers and have a conversation with them about this because you know, these are the people who are in the uh, in the uh, the crosshairs. Mike's introductory column is entitled "Environmental and Health Safety: Electronics and the Circular Economy." We've got a link to it on the page dedicated to this podcast. Go to eetimes.com and click on radio in the nav bar to find it. That's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on iTunes, Android, Spotify, and Stitcher. But if you get to the podcast via our website, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we refer to, along with the occasional photo and videos. Visit www.eetimes.com and click where it says radio to find the full archive of podcasts. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.